I'm going to just go ahead and start with prayer, and then we'll um, start walking through the disciplines once again. <laughs> Dear Lord God, we love you. We thank you for just the sunrise this morning and the, the reminder of your faithfulness that you are watching out for us always, that you um, are always awake when we are sleeping and, and we're safe in your care. Thank you for your word and the power of your word, for even giving us access to your word by sending your son to take the, your wrath that we deserve, to die that we could be forgiven and have new life with him, be raised with him and, be, and um, live with him and have peace before you, God. So we, we thank you for all these things that you provide for us and for your word that we have, that we know is, are, is from you and is breathed out by you, is unchanging. Help us today, Lord, as we learn how to handle it well. Pray that you would just give us soft hearts as we hear your word and as, as we're encouraged um, give us hearts that are humble and willing to see where we need to change and grow and praise you for where we are walking well with you because that's your hand on us, your grace. So we thank you and we praise you and pray that you will be honored and glorified with all that we do and say this morning. In your precious son's name we pray, amen. Well, I was, I was just encouraged to go back and think about all that we've learned so far in Wellspring because we've been learning a lot about God in his glory and encouraging each other to be in his word faithfully. Um, we've learned about the purpose of the church, drawing in, building up, sending out, and how everyone in the church is part of that, that purpose as well. We've learned how our hearts are in this mixed condition and that we are, um, we have at salvation, we have new abilities to love God and to obey him and to follow his word, but we also are easily led astray and we tend to wander back to our old way of thinking um, unless we shepherd our hearts toward God's word and to be reminded um, regularly. And we've learned that as women, how we need to be helping each other to remember our God-given roles and to encourage one another in pursuing God and his word and living out the unique things that he requires us that involve not only our own hearts, but those around us and in our homes as well. And today we get to hear from Scott Demarest as he brings God's word to us and shows us how to handle it rightly. And... I'm thankful that we get the chance to hear this lesson together today. Um, Scott, as you know, is one of our elders, and he's married to Sarah, who taught us last time. And he has three children that are all grown and, and a grandbaby. <laughs> Can't forget that one. And Scott recently retired, and so now he's able to do seminary classes. So knowing how much time that requires of him, we are just so thankful that he was able to come today. 
and be with us. Um, and But before Scott comes, though, I want to walk through the disciplines with you one more time. And to do that, I wanted to look at 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 12. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, and also you can have your notebooks turned over, because we'll kind of go back and forth. So I'm just going to read 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 12. This is what Paul wrote to Timothy to encourage him in his ministry work. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. So let's go ahead and read through the purpose and disciplines on the back of your notebook, and then I'll bring out some observations from 2 Timothy as we go. So first, the Wellspring purpose, to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. So I need to have this big picture in mind as I approach God's word, to remember that my gospel transformed life makes a difference in the strength of the church to fulfill its gospel purpose. To the extent that I am faithful to bring God's word to bear on my heart, which means praying before and during and after I'm reading God's word, meditating on it so that it informs my thoughts and decisions, and doing what it says with my actions and attitudes throughout every minute of the day. To the extent that I do that individually determines the strength of the church's effectiveness and its gospel purpose. So I should feel the weight of that every time I go about my life and determine how to spend my time each of us should. Now let's look at the disciplines. What does it take to be that kind of a faithful woman? Faith, um, D1, the heart. The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God and in particular the gospel. So let's think about that last part, the gospel, and what we see in Second Timothy. In verse 8, Paul reminds Timothy not to be ashamed of the gospel, the testimony of the Lord, according to or because of the power of God. God's power there is his ability to carry the gospel into effect. In verse 9, he is reminding Timothy, it's God who saved us and called us with a holy calling. This calling has God's power behind it. It's not my feeble works or efforts. 
behind it, but it's God's own purpose and grace, which was granted me in Christ Jesus. And that wasn't mustered up as an afterthought, but from all eternity. This has been the planned effect of the gospel, that I would have access to God's own purpose and grace. That's encouraging to me. Also, Christ is the vehicle through which believers are granted, with no expectation for repayment, God's purpose and grace. Christ our Savior appeared. He abolished death, brought life and immortality to light through the shedding of his own blood and death, was buried and raised on the third day, was seated at the right hand of the Father, and in, he's now there interceding for us through all eternity. Having that in mind is help, so helpful. In Christ, I have newness of life, eternal life, life with purpose, God's purpose and grace. How can I act in such a way as to be ashamed of that gospel? This truth prepares me for whatever suffering may come my way as I hold fast to it, as I engage in the life God has for me each day. So let's go on to D2, the home. The faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God in his word. So the primary place that God has called me to as a woman is to serve those in my home. Each of our homes may look different, but God's call is the same for each of us. When Christ rose from the dead, he brought life and immortality to light, back in 2 Timothy. And in verse 11 and 12, we see Paul as a worker, as a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the gospel message. He had to suffer much. But he wasn't ashamed because he knew whom he had believed and he was convinced that God was able to guard what he had entrusted to him until Christ's return. So ladies, we have to ask ourselves, do, do I believe? Am I convinced that the power of God in the gospel is sufficient to guard what I've entrusted to him? As I step into my home and die to myself, and seek to live out self-giving service to those who God has put in my home, that he will be with me in it, giving me all I need in his word to do what I need to do well for his glory. It will require some form of suffering and heartache, but do I believe that God's purpose and grace is in it all? May I be humble, a humble servant working in line with God to accomplish his purposes in my home by his grace. Um, and then I had to think about the opposite. If I were in my home without my heart fixed on God and his word, I'll be there prone to be in my home with a self-focused attitude, complaining about the work God has for me there and the people that I have to interact with daily, giving way to temptations to hold grudges or be super critical for the actions and attitudes of others without first checking the log in my own eye. I'll be more quick to blurt out the first thing that comes to mind instead of praying and asking God to help me guard my words and fill me with the, His Spirit. That will help me to think according to His Word and according to His gospel power. These describe a believer who 
is ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, one who does not believe Christ, nor, are, nor are they convinced that he's able to keep his promises. I know it, you're like me. I've been there. We all have been there. But God is so gracious and kind to draw us back and put us on the right path. We just need to look to him and ask his forgiveness, and he's there ready to give us his power, right? Um, in, let's go on to D3, ministry. With the heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, the faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and his gospel. Now, having worked through these truths in my heart and in my home prayerfully and humbly, I now step out and grow even more by interacting and encouraging and helping others in the church and day-to-day -day life with things that God is teaching me in order to bring them along on this wonderful journey. May God be glorified as we walk this road together. May we live in such a way that his gospel is displayed and honored in order to draw others to be convinced of God's power at work. So with that, Scott, would you come and teach us? All right, it is good to be here. I'm really thankful to be here, and I have to tell you, I enjoy doing this. This is, this is really good. I'm really glad to see you. Really glad to see you. Um, I really enjoy teaching this lesson uh, because, first and foremost, it's a ministry to my own heart, and uh, I hope it's a blessing to you guys as well. So let's pray, and then we'll get started. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your grace and your kindness. And Lord, I, I pray that as we spend time together in your word, that you would be exalted. Lord, I pray that you would grant to us an abundant measure of your spirit, both to me to speak and everybody else to discern and to hear and listen. Lord, so that you would be honored, you would be glorified in what we do. Lord, we thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us in your word. What a gift to us that you have forfeited your own privacy and, and allowed us a small view into who you are, uh, Lord God, so that we can worship you rightly, we can understand you, and we can begin to comprehend just a small piece of what we will comprehend in much greater measure in eternity. So I pray for us that you would minister to us and you would take care of us today through your word, and I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. First thing I want to do this morning is just thank you for being here. Um, and here's why I want to do that. Um, when you get together, when any part of the body of Christ gets together and they share their life together, they share what God is teaching them in their own Bible reading, they share what God is teaching them through their, their time in prayer, uh, and they encourage one another, the body of Christ is built up. Uh, the church is strengthened, and we are a better representative of the gospel to the rest of the world. So. It's 7 o'clock in the morning and you're here and uh, the blessing is going to be to this church because you're here. So thank you for doing that. I think we're on week 5 out of 16 or so. But just persevere. Thank you for doing this. Um, this church is blessed for it. So just want to express my gratitude on behalf of all of the leaders of this church to you guys for getting here and, and being here. This is a significant step in this church continuing to be a a faithful church, and a good church, and a strong church, and a church that others would want to come to. So thank you. All right, so uh, today we're going to be looking at how we honor God in our Bible reading. 
And uh, what I'm going to start with is a question, and the question is, have you ever had your words misconstrued or misunderstood? And perhaps it was by a friend, uh, maybe it was by some authority figure, or maybe it was even somebody in your own church. Just think about an occasion where perhaps your words have been misunderstood or misconstrued. Like, have you ever been quoted by somebody and found somebody quoting you and you say to yourself, that is not at all the meaning of what I said. That wasn't at all what I said. You had a message and you communicated that message clearly, probably in a conversation or something like that, and your words were just misconstrued. That's really hard, isn't it? Uh, because there are consequences to that, um, and the consequences can be pretty significant in relationships. The consequences can be pretty significant to your own reputation or the way other people view you or whatever else. Um, and if that's when how we feel when people do that with our words, um, shouldn't we be careful with how we handle God's words and how he represents himself to us? Today we're going to look at how we can honor the Lord when our Bibles are open and we're alone with God. Uh, but one of the most important steps we can take when we do that is the preparation of our own heart. And one of the biggest takeaways I, I hope you get from this morning is whenever you read your Bible, the most important thing you need to do is prepare your heart before you read your Bible. That's one of the most important things you can do. And heart preparation is essential because you need a soft, well-prepared heart to be receptive and sensitive to Scripture's authority over you. Because uh, Scripture speaks into our lives and uh, we need to be ready to receive it. And when we wake up and start motoring through our day, if we don't spend time to center ourselves with who we are before God, um, our time in the Word won't be nearly as fruitful as it would be otherwise. So we're going to look at four ways in which you can prepare your heart before you read God's Word. And before I get going, I just want to tell you guys that there are lots and lots and lots of ways to do this. This is what I do, but there are some variations to how I do this, and sometimes I don't do the same thing. But, but these ideas are things that you want to keep in front of you in part of, parcel, part of the process of preparing yourself to, to meet with God over his word. And whenever you meet with God over his word, it's really important first that you agree with God about his nature. You agree with God about who he is. Um, scripture is God's revelation of himself to us. So do a little work to remind yourself of the kind of God that scripture is revealing to you. So whether you're starting your day with your Bible reading or whether your day ends with your Bible reading or your Bible reading occurs in the middle of your day somewhere, it's really, really important that you keep a couple of things in front of you when you're thinking about God's nature. And the first is God's holiness. And when you think about God, uh, the first thought that you need to consider is God's holiness. And that is the one singular defining characteristic of God, if there is one, is that he is a holy God. And so I want to ask you guys to turn to Revelation chapter 4. We're going to look at verse 8 together. And the scene here is the throne room in heaven. John is writing to these seven churches, and he is describing to them what the throne room in heaven looks like, and this is pretty impressive. And what he sees in this particular part of chapter 4 is four living creatures. And these living creatures are very perceptive. And they're very intelligent creatures. And they're not compromised in any way by sin. They're not like us, where we're a little bit limited with what we've got upstairs, and we are compromised by sin, and they are not. But what they say is really, really impressive. 
And this is what is said by those who can see much more with much more discernment than we can. The end of verse 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So the repetition is there. You see three times. Holy, holy, holy. Whenever you see that repetition, you can think emphasis. Right? That the, the author is making a point by saying something again and again and again. God is exceedingly holy. That's our takeaway that we need to get from this. He's not just sort of holy. He's exceedingly holy. And his holiness relates to the degree that he is separate from us. Holiness has to do with God's separateness or his otherness from us. And he is separate in a long, long list of ways from us. And I'm just going to list a few. You might want to jot a couple of them down. But God is separate from us in his moral purity, in his being, in his power, in his wisdom. He's separated from us in his vengeance. His vengeance is really, really good. Ours is always broken when we use it. He's separate from us in his mercy and in his kindness and in his love. And the list could go on and on and on. So set aside some time to remind yourself of this, that God is separate from me. I'm dealing with the writing of a God, the revelation of a God who is really different from me. I'm not reading a letter from a good friend. So it might be helpful to say something like this. Father, you are so set apart from me. Your ways are so different from mine. I have no hope of grasping your word on my own. I can't do that. I just can't do that. I desperately need your help to understand this, to comprehend this, to get this. I, I really need your help. If I just sit down and start reading, I will completely miss the point of meeting with you over your word. So help me. So think about God's holiness. Um, it's really, really helpful just to think about that. And that can carry with you throughout the rest of the day. That has bearing on what you do when you're in your car and you're driving and you're alone. And lots of other things. But particularly when you're reading your Bible. The other defining characteristic of God that you see throughout Scripture from page 1 until the very end is God's glory. Psalm 19, we, we know this. Psalm 19 is really helpful. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, not trickles, but pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. You see it during the day when you look around here. You see it at night when you look up. You can't help but seeing God's glory. And glory speaks of this idea where God is impressive. He is weighty. There's a lot of substance to God. And you get that picture when you look out at night and you realize that there's things out there that are beyond where you can see. And they have a size and they have a temperature and they have a sound and they have a smell and they have a pressure that we can't even begin to imagine. Have you ever thought about what it would sound like to be near the sun? God is pretty impressive. He's pretty weighty. Uh, and there's trillions and gazillions of celestial bodies just like our sun. And they're bigger. And they're hotter. Our sun is a collection of gases that are burning at 5,600 degrees at the surface. 8,600 degrees at the center. And occasionally, some of the gas that's, that's held in by that immense pressure of gravity, occasionally some of it spurts out. And this little spurt of gas, well, that little spurt is 
125,000 miles in size. And I, I didn't bring a picture, but there's a picture online of, of the sun and it's burning and there's this spew of gas that just flares out the side. And uh, the, it's just impressive. And it happened in the, in the course of just a few seconds. And the picture was captured and it's just really impressive. And God is saying, I am really, really impressive. And those are the words that you're, you're reading. God, please grant me an appropriate sobriety and discernment as I read my Bible. Just give me that discernment when I read your Bible. We want to remind ourselves of God nature before God's nature before we begin reading his words. So remind yourself of God's nature. And primarily, it's his holiness on one hand and his glory on the other hand. And both of them are just beyond us to get. We'll never completely get that. We're going to get that in eternity over time as we spend millennia understanding who God is and comprehending it. It's going to be great. Second thing we need to agree with God about is his word. Agree with God about his character and who he is and his nature, but agree with God about his word and specifically the benefit that his word is going to bring to you. Uh, we heard this already this morning. Uh, John seventeen seventeen. This is so helpful. When you read the word, the word has a sanctifying effect on you. John 17 is Jesus' high priestly prayer. You know, he's He's with the disciples on the night before his crucifixion. And he prays for three groups of people in that chapter 17 of John. First, he prays for himself in the first five verses. And then he prays for the disciples in the next several verses. And then at the end of the chapter, he prays for us. He prays for the church. And verse 17 is towards the end of his time when he's praying for the disciples. And he knows that they're going to raise the church on their own. He knows that they are going to start the church and he knows that they're going to do it without him. And he knows that they need sanctified lives to do that. So he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So when we are living sanctified lives, it's because the word of God is in us. If we want to become more sanctified, we need God's word as our foundation for that. So it's really helpful to say, Father, your son is telling me that there is one and only one source of sanctification, and that is in your word. That's the foundation for that is in your work. We get sanctified by trials. We get sanctified by blessings, lots of other things. But we can only understand those trials. And we can only understand those blessings when uh, they have their foundation in God's word. When we, when we see them, when we view them through the lens of God's word. So we, we need to understand what God's word does for us. It, it sanctifies us. And we're not reading something that's really cool and really neat, but it's going to kind of go away tomorrow. You can read about the Phoenix Suns and how they lost last night, and that'll be old history soon. But these words have been the same for a very long time. They've been the same since they were penned. They've had the same meaning. And it sanctifies every single person, every single believer who reads it. I didn't list this because uh, I, I didn't get around to doing this, but I, I want you to write down one other thing that the Word does. So the Word sanctifies you. Secondly, just write down this. The word gives you insight into yourself. Okay, when you read the Bible, God is telling you about himself and he's telling you about yourself. Write down Hebrews 4.12. We know this. The word of God is four things. It's living. It's active. It's sharp. And that sharpness is described as sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates deep into you. And then the last one is the one I, I want to point to here this morning. And that is that it's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. 
So you've got God's word open. It's, it's telling you about you. When you put your life next to God's word, you can see yourself clearly. You can see your thoughts. You can see the intentions of who you really, really are at a heart level. That's what we've been learning all year long about is that, that the heart is the inner man, the inner woman. It's who you really are before God. And the word of God is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. So keep track of that and say, Lord, through your word, will you please show me where I have fondness for the things of this world, where I have weak affections for you, where I believe the lies of the enemy. Will you use your word to show me these things? Uh, Help me to come away with just a much bigger understanding of, of myself. It's really helpful, thirdly, that you agree with God about your nature. It's really helpful for the believer to agree with God about who they used to be and who they are today. Because the the right response to that is gratitude. And so it's really important to read, remember your former condition. And, and we all know this, Ephesians chapter 2. Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus. This is the church that he spent the most time with. He spent three years with these people. And he preached to them and he gave them a really solid foundation. And he says to them, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. According to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's working in the sons of disobedience. And he says, and among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and our mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest even like the rest. It's really good to remind yourself before God of who you used to be. If you're in Christ, remind yourself, maybe not every day, but remind yourself regularly of who you were because what that does is that reminds you of what God did to get you to where you are today. Agree with God about the spiritually unresponsive condition you were in. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You know, the gospel is there, it's being presented to you and you just miss it all day long because... You're dead in your sin. I was like that. I know exactly what that's like. Gospel's right in front of my face for a very long time, and I couldn't tell it from the sun. I just couldn't. I agree with God that you had no ability or no interest in responding to God's precious and holy word. And the point here is not to embarrass yourself. The point is to remind yourself of the power of the gospel that it had on you, and you can remind yourself of that and get the best picture of that when you think about what it was that you formerly were and who you are today. So use that as encouragement. And if that passage uh, gets a little stale, if it's hard to remember that all the time, there's another one that's just so helpful. That's Titus 3, 3 through 6 or 7. I've got that here. Titus 3, 3 through 6. We also once were foolish ourselves. And Paul describes this foolishness in eight ways. He said we were disobedient, we were deceived, We were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. We were spending our life in malice, spending our life in envy. We were hateful. We were hating one another. And then Paul goes on. He says, but when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of things we did in righteousness, because we had no righteousness. He goes on and describes how it was that God saved. Which is very, very, very helpful to remember who you used to be. And that is not who you are today. So the other half of remembering who you are and who you were before God is remembering your current mixed condition. This is what Dina mentioned just a minute ago. 
one of the lessons you had a few weeks back was the, the God's transformation of man, and we are in that center section of the, the pamphlet, right? The believer is not the, the unregenerate man. The believer is not the heavenly man. The believer in this world is the regenerate man, and he's in a mixed condition where he does have God's Holy Spirit in him, but he also has that same body of flesh that he's been living with his whole life. Um, he's got the Holy Spirit that regenerated him and stayed after regeneration, but he's still got his old flesh. And it's really helpful. Galatians 5, 17. The flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So you've got a picture that's like this. You've got this going on inside you right now. And you've got it going on inside you. When you're reading your Bible, you've got this great environment. You've somehow, magically, everything works. And you've got a great place and a great time. And you're wide awake to read your Bible. And everything is great. And the Lord has blessed you. But there is a battle going on inside you. Um, even then. The flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. One part of you is actually opposed to the other part of you when you're reading your Bible. So, Lord, it is imperative that I fill my mind with the truth of Scripture so that I'm equipped to fight that battle well. The best weapon you have towards fighting against the flesh that is in you, that has always been in you, is God's word. So Lord, would you bring that word alive to me as I'm reading it? Help me, please. Romans 6, 4 is so good. Romans 6 is a really great chapter because it tells you that the believer has a new relationship to sin. You know, the unbeliever, they sin all the time. Believers, they sin all the time. But what's true about the unbeliever is that they are a slave to that sin. But what's true about the believer is that they are no longer a slave to that sin. Every time we sin, it's because we choose to. We're not a slave to it. We have a new master, and that master is Christ. Verse 4 is so helpful. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. Christ was raised from the dead so that we can walk in newness of life. As certainly and as surely as the resurrection took place, that with that same certainty, we can walk in newness of life. So that reminds you that you're not the person you used to be when you think back to Ephesians 2 or Titus 3. We're not that person. I have the ability to walk in newness of life. So Lord, would you show me from your word the things that I have the capacity to do as a believer? And then lastly, just remember your, remind yourself of your, your purpose for reading God's word. And this, I think, is the, the major takeaway. We, the earlier takeaway, that was the minor takeaway, but this is the major takeaway. This is really, really important. When you sit down to read God's word, your first and foremost purpose is to bring glory to the Lord. Um, and this, is, this was new for me at one point in my life. When I, when I was exposed to this for the first time, I didn't get that this is why I read my Bible. To see that, let's turn in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 9 to 11 together. And Paul is writing to this church that he dearly loves. Uh, this church was started primarily by a group of women who met outside of the city to pray. So good job, guys. Really, really good. So Paul is writing to them, and he's going to talk about a whole bunch of really good things that he's praying for with these ladies and these men in this church, led by men. This I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. So that's good. So that you may approve things that are excellent. That's really good. In order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, that's essential. We need that. 
having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. That is really good. We want those things in our lives, right? So we, have, we are to be people who have love that abounds in, in knowledge and discernment. And we are to be people who approve things that are excellent. And we are to be people who are sincere and blameless. And we are to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. But why do we do that? Just look at the back end of verse 11. We do that to the glory and the praise of God. So all of these things, our love, our approvals, our blamelessness, our righteous fruits, they are to be for the glory of to the glory and the praise of God. And included in all these things is the way we read our Bibles. So the overarching purpose of our lives is that we bring praise and glory to God. So God grant me grace in my reading of Scripture, a reading that informs me as to what is right and good, that I would do it for your glory, first and foremost. And I want to say something here that that I, I hope doesn't sound shocking, but I hope it's encouraging. And that is that my primary objective when we read our Bibles is not to grow in my skill and ability with God's Word. That's a very, very, very good thing to grow in your ability to handle God's Word. Second Timothy 2.15, we want to be a workman who's approved. But that's not primarily why we meet alone with God over His Word. It's not to become a better wife, a better friend, a better mother. It's not to be that. Even though when you read your Bible, you will become a better wife, mother, friend, daughter, sister, everything else. It's not to build a better defense of the doctrines of grace or refine your eschatology and your understanding of the end times. Those things will happen when you read your Bible carefully, but that's not why you read your Bible carefully. My primary aim is to bring glory to God in the reading of your word. And the way you do that is you use self-control when you read it. You know, So, Lord, grant me grace that I will draw near to you and I will maintain a closeness to you when I read your word. So, God, I beg you, by your grace, help me to do this for your glory. But on a personal level, we do this to be pleasing to Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, I want us to turn there. We're going to see the word Lord in this passage. And when we see the word Lord in this passage, This means our master, this means our shepherd, this means Christ. Paul's writing, he writes and says, We are of good courage, and we prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Okay, so we know that where we're going is much, much better than where we are today. Um, But while we're here, we have it as our ambition, whether we're here or whether we're there, to be pleasing to him. So the hymn here again is Jesus. Christians are looking forward to being absent from the body. We're looking forward to being home with Christ because we're going to be done with this and we're going to be ready to have fellowship with Christ forever. But the one to whom we're to be pleasing is Christ. So Jesus, your Father, has made me one of your sheep. You are my master. You are my Lord. You are my shepherd. It's not just how I respond to my Bible after I read it that has bearing on the kind of sheep that I am, but it's It's how I have a disposition towards you while I'm reading my Bible that has bearing on what kind of sheep I am. So it's while we're reading our Bibles that we we show what kind of sheep we are in addition to what we do with it afterwards. And I want to put two words in front of you guys that I think are helpful. Um, and, And those two words, you can jot these down, are dwell and swell. And this is a repeat of the lesson when I taught it last year, but this is is so meaningful. Did you know that there's 1,100 instructions in your New Testament? 
that you, the New Testament starts in Matthew's Gospel with the genealogy of Jesus, and that takes several verses. But once you get done with the genealogy of Jesus, uh, it doesn't take you long to get to the first instruction that's given in the New Testament. There's an angel that appears to Joseph and gives him an instruction right there. And if you go to the back end of your Bible in Revelation and work backwards, it doesn't take you very long to get to the last instruction. There's 1,100 instructions in between. And so you're going to come to um, an instruction where um, what becomes very apparent is someone you know, a good sister in Christ, a good brother in Christ, your husband, your kid, your father, your mother, someone you know and someone you love, but there's an instruction where they are not doing well. You know? You're going to be reading along and you're going to find an instruction like, oh, he's got ways to grow there. He really does. He could really grow there. Yeah, he really could grow there. Uh, the word dwell. When you're reading your Bible, uh, don't use it as an opportunity to dwell on the sins of others. Yeah. Secondly, swell. Don't swell with pride when you read your Bible. 1,100 instructions. There's going to be a few in there where you're doing pretty well, right? You're going to find them and say, you know, I've grown in that area recently. I've grown in the last five years in that area, and I think I'm doing well. You start to feel pretty good about yourself. Lord, may I not use your word to elevate myself and think poorly of others. Instead, I need to stay humble under the reading of your word. So help me, please. Help me. This tugs at me, at my heart, when I'm reading my Bible. It did this morning when I was reading my Bible. And I've been reading my Bible as a believer for 41 years. And it still is there. It is still there. I can't believe it. It's still there. So I really need to guard my heart. Okay, so those are four things. Uh, you need to remind yourself about God. You need to remind yourself about God's Word. It's really important to remind yourself about yourself. And it's really important to remind yourself, why am I doing this? You know, you open your Bible. You don't just read your Bible because that's what they tell you to do and build and wellspring and digging deeper and everything else. Um, that's what we tell the kids to do. Remind yourself of why you're here. Um, and let's be real. Let's be honest. Everybody's life has got challenging circumstances in it. Um, aim for this. Run hard after this. And we realize that there's realities in everybody's life and the makeup of your home and everything else that makes this challenging. But what I'm putting in front of you is, is good thoughts about how you can make your time with the Lord useful. Okay, so once you've prepared your heart, and it's really important to prepare your heart first, um, use self-control when you're reading God's Word, and I'm going to show you eight different ways that you can do that. You know, you've got your Bible open, you're reading, you're flipping along, you're scrolling along. Um, what I want you to think clearly about is, when was the last time that you communicated um, so as not to be understood. When was the last time in your communication um, you intended two equally valid meetings when you said something? Just think about that for a second. When was the last time you said something significant? More than, hey, how you doing? You said something significant and you went to somebody and you were, you're trying to communicate. When was the last time you had two messages in those same set of words? So let's say you have three kids. You either have them or you've had them a few generations back or decades ago. You give them, all three of them, the same clear instruction at the same time. Okay, guys, here's the instruction. Would you consider it reasonable for each one of your own kids to come to their own unique understanding of what you meant with your instruction? It doesn't work, does it? How well would your household function? You got everybody going everywhere. 
The same thing happens to the church when we do that with God's word. It really, really does. Well, hey, this is what I think this passage means. So we need to expect a single meaning from every passage. God has a single meaning. He's he's got a single meaning. You're reading a passage, there there is a meaning for that passage. He means one thing. Sometimes he has a lot of things to say in a passage, but he's, he's saying one thing. He's not saying two contrary things, two parallel things. One of them is right. Language is God's gift to us, and God gave language to us to enable clear communication with one another. And get this, clear communication with a singular meaning is part of God's holy character. Part of God being holy is that he has one meaning when he says things. Think about page one in your Bible. Let there be light. He didn't say, let there be brown, orange, or purple, or green. He said, let there be light, and there was light. So clear communication flows out of God's holy character. Let's go to Isaiah 45. This is really important. Isaiah is in a section where uh, in this passage, in section of Isaiah in the 40s, there's a lot of things going on, but one of the things that Isaiah is doing is he is showing how different God is from all the other gods, all the other little g gods. Isaiah 45, we're going to look at 18 and 19. Thus says Yahweh, skip ahead just a bit, I am Yahweh, and there is no one else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land, I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a wasteland. And this is the part we want to look at. I, Yahweh, I, the one who is, I speak righteousness and I declare things that are right. So here's God. He's declaring to Israel, I'm the only God. I told you generations ago, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Well, I'm the only God. You've got to get this. And the one thing that sets me apart from everybody else is my communication. And you can see that at the end of verse 19. I, Yahweh, speak righteousness, declaring things that are right. Something that is righteous is something that is right. It is perfect. It's without error. It's without omission. Right? So one characteristic of righteous speech is that it is clear. Righteous speech is in no way confusing. It's not vague. It's not uncertain. It's none of those things. God is telling us this. He's saying, my communication is righteous. There is nothing missing here that needs to be there. There's nothing confusing. So when I speak, I have one meaning. So what we need to say today is that clear communication flows out of God's holy character. And because God is holy, his communication is clear. Now, We're reading our Bibles, and this happens to me when I'm reading my Bible. I'm reading along, and I'm thinking, I don't quite get that, or I don't have that one all wrapped up. I'm reading, you you know, you're reading, and you realize there's a lot more there than I'm getting, right? Well, what we need to understand is that the deficiency there is on our end. It's not with the message itself. And it's really great that God grows us in sanctification. As he grows us in our sanctification, like we touched on earlier, He's growing us in our ability to comprehend his word. So we're always going to be looking at his word going, "Eh, there's more there than I'm getting. But it's not on God's end, it's on our end, okay? And that should just keep us humble when we're reading the Bible.
The other thing that's really important about clear communication is clear communication is essential for obedience. It is so important. It's critical. It's crucial. Deuteronomy 29.29. Uh, turn there. And this is one of those verses where everybody likes to put their focus and their attention on the front end of the verse. Hey, what are the secret things of God? We're going to look at the back end of the verse. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever. So that. And whenever you see the words so that in your Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, think about them in red letters. They're really important because it tells you what you need to do in response to what you just heard. It says, the things revealed to us belong to us and to our sons forever so that we may follow all the words of this law. The focus here on the back end of the verse is that God revealed things to us so that we can follow them. God communicated his law to Israel and he expected Israel to obey him. And the expectation he put on Israel to obey, to obey his law demanded that his communication of that law be clear, right? Your boss tells you to do something, you can only do it if he's clear about what it is you're supposed to do. The reason God can expect obedience from us is that the meaning of the words he uses to give his commands to us is clear. The words are clear. So when you're reading a passage in your Bible, use self-control and remember that that passage has one and only one meaning. Okay. It's going to be helpful. Secondly, when you're reading your Bible, just hold fast to the normal use of words and language. Really helpful. And to do that, I want you to think of three words that help you. Literal, grammatical, historical. LGH. It's really helpful to take the words of Scripture literally as often as you can. As often as the occasion warrants it. John 1.1. 1, 1. We all know this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So it tells us some things. It tells us that the Word existed in the beginning. So what we get from that is that the Word transcends time. When we understand Jesus, we understand that He transcends time because God's Word here clearly tells us that He was in the beginning, right? But this also tells us that the Word existed together with God. So that the Word is in some way distinct from God because He was together with God. If two things are together, they're two things, and they're distinct in some way. So we understand that because we're reading our Bible literally. Then we understand that the Word was God. So it tells us that the Word has, even though He's distinct from God, the Word has identity with God. And we get that from just a literal reading of our Bible. That's very helpful. Let's uh, drop down to John 1, 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Again, it's just really helpful to think about what this means literally. The Word became flesh. The normal reading of this leads us to conclude that the Word took on human form and He lived on earth with humankind. That He was here. And that was a huge problem in the first century Mediterranean world. Huge problem. Was He really here? No, He wasn't really here. Well, the Word tells us that he was. Sometimes Scripture uses metaphors. And when we, use, when we see a metaphor in Scripture, we, we can't take that word literally. But we all know this. We're all reasonable when we're reading our Bibles. Uh, stay in John 
And we'll go to John chapter 10. And Jesus is writing. We, we just spent several weeks in John 10 in the service. This is really helpful. Towards the beginning of the chapter, verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. And he will go in and out and find pasture. So Jesus is describing himself by mentioning a door. He says, I am the door. The literal meaning of a door helps us understand that Jesus is the entrance into the kingdom of heaven. So there's occasions where you see metaphors. There's occasions where you see similes. You see other things. You see analogies in scripture. But even then, the literal meaning of those words helps guide your thought when you're reading your Bibles. So that's literal. You also want to be using good grammar when you read your Bibles. This is really important. Um, because good grammar really helps you. And this doesn't mean you're an English pro when you're reading your Bible. But just look at where the commas are. Look at where the capital letters are. Look at where these things fit together. I'm just going to put one position. Uh, I am going to put one passage in front of you. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. It just tells you how to think carefully about grammar when you're using, when you're reading your Bible. Paul has one sentence here that spreads across three verses. He says at the beginning in verse 14, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. By the trickery of people, by the craftiness and deceitful scheming. So you look at verse 14 and Paul says, we are no longer to be children tossed about dot 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 by deceitful scheming. So we're no longer to be children is the main thought there. And what kind of children are we no longer to be? The kind that are tossed about by every wind of doctrine, trickery of people, craftiness, deceitful scheming. So look for the, the main thought in the sentence. We are no longer to be children. Verse 15 helps us understand other things. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head. That is Christ. Well, the main idea there is we are to grow up into him. And we do that by speaking the truth in love. So when you go to someone and you speak the truth in love, whether it's encouraging words or it's exhorting words, uh, this is how you're helping one another grow up into Christ. And verse 16 tells us how the body functions. You see at the very beginning, um, end of verse 15, grow up into all aspects into him who is the head, that is Christ. So verse 16 is talking about Christ because you see from whom, so that, that whom there points back to Jesus, from whom the whole body, and then stop, and jump way ahead towards the end of the verse, from whom the whole body, dot, 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 causes the growth of the body. See that? So that when you read verse 16, you learn that the body causes the growth of the body. And the words in between tell you how the body causes the growth of the body. They cause the growth of one another by being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. So Paul's using a picture of the, the human body here. So the body causes the growth of the body by being fitted together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each part. So the idea here, I just went through that so you can see that when you're reading your Bible, just read it carefully and, and use grammar to help you try and understand what's going on. What's the main idea in a sentence? Where's the subject? Where's the verb? Just helpful. Very, very helpful. And then historical. You know, the Bible was not written in 2022. 
The Bible was written over the span of 1,500 years by approximately 30 different authors. So some good questions you can ask when you're about to read is, what do I know about the author? What do I know about the audience? What do I know about the setting? This is where a, a timeline of your Bible can be really, really helpful. You can find tons of them online. Some Bibles have them in the front. They're really, really helpful. Because it helps you understand where is Paul in his missionary journeys. I'm going to get a drink. You know, when you're reading your New Testament, you read all these letters, it's helpful to know kind of which ones came before other ones. Why were they written? Where was Paul when he wrote them? There's a bunch of prison letters. Many of them were written from Rome. And when you're reading your Old Testament, you know, it's good to understand um, where does this book fit in the history? You've got all of these prophecy books towards the end. You've got the Samuels and the Kings and the Chronicles that tell you about kind of Israel's history. Where do all these things fit together? A timeline is really helpful. A timeline that shows you who the prophets are and where they line up with all the kings. A timeline that tells you all of these things. Um, really, really helpful. Um, where they fit in. You know, when was the northern kingdom exiled away? And some other things like that. I'm going to touch on this at the very end, but you'll understand when you read the Chronicles, after you get past all those genealogies for the first eight or so chapters, the only thing the Chronicles um, mention is the southern kingdom. And we'll talk about why that is later. But it's, it's really helpful just to have some basic idea of history as you're reading your Bibles. Um, where did this occur? Who is the target audience? Why am I reading this? Um, which books were written in the Old Testament after Israel came back from exile? And that's helpful to understand. It's really helpful. So um, a timeline can really help you there. Really helpful. Third thing is observe your passage before you try and figure out what it means. Just observe your passage. You read your Bible and go, I don't know what this means. Well, the first thing you need to do when you read your Bible is just to observe it. Um, and so one of the things that, that's really understand, important to understand here is when you've got a passage in front of you, just ask yourself lots of W questions. Who, what, where, when, why, how is an H question. Not all of them are answered in every passage. Not all of them are important or relevant. But look at what is happening. Who is working together? Who is the, the audience? What is being said? Why is it being said? Where are they? How are they supposed to do these things? How is a really important question to answer a lot of times? When you make observations, when you make a lot of them, you just look at what's, what's being said. What that does is that puts all the pieces in good order together and so you can figure out the meaning much more closely if you understand what's actually there. You, know? you can put a puzzle together when all the pieces are turned right side up and they're all kind of in the right places. You see how they fit together. That's what's happening when you read your Bible and you make good observations. And so notice instructions. Notice exhortations. You're reading along, you find some list. What is this list about? Why is this list here? You know, what does it say? Um, is the list comprehensive when they give you a list? Sometimes the list is there, and, and Paul says, and such other things like these. So helps you keep you from being a legalist. You know? It's really important. So, so make observations in your passage. God gave you the words. You can look at them and say, okay, just what is happening here? That helps you understand a whole lot when you're trying to figure out what it really means. And fourthly, uh, understand the difference between interpretation and application. 
And this is a really good analogy. I, I didn't come up with this on my own. Scott Maxwell came up with this a long time ago. And this is really helpful. Um, we talked about observation. Observation is what's there. Interpretation is what it means. Okay, so now I know pretty much what is there. Now I'm going to try and figure out what this means. Understand what a passage means before you apply it. They're like, and here's the analogy. It's like a baton in a relay race. You have the first runner, and that first runner is interpretation. And that second runner is application. And really the first runner is observation, then interpretation and application. But the important thing is there is one intended meaning, right? So you want to get the interpretation as clear in your mind as you can before you start thinking about how you're going to apply it to your life. And there's one interpretation that's true, but there are many applications because there are many different people here in this room. And we've all got different, different situations in our life. So how we apply that one truth is different for all of us. But what that one truth is, is the same regardless of who's reading it. Whether it's you or a guy in Poland or a woman in Argentina, it, it means the same thing. How they apply it, totally different. You ever read God's Bible and you're reading your Bible and you go, no way. Uh, no way, that's not for me. Uh, I've done that. I'm reading my Bible and I say, that's too hard. I, I can't bring myself to confess that or I can't bring myself to praise that person or thank that person right now because I just don't want to. My will is, your will is at work and we got that flesh that's opposed to your spirit. You're reading your Bible. Well, entrust yourself to God's wisdom. It's really important to do that because he knows better than you do what we need to do because he made us. God's wisdom is above my wisdom. Isaiah 55, verse 8. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. God's view of human history is comprehensive and complete. We're in this little slice right here in the middle of it somewhere. God is the one who decides what is right and good, so don't let your emotions rule over your assessment of God's word. Instead, let God's word be a guide to your emotions. Okay? Don't let your emotions get in the driver's seat. Use God's word as the driver and your emotions are in the passenger seat. They're along for the ride. They need to be guided, modified by the word. Now here's a passage I think is really, really helpful. It's Isaiah 66. And turn to Isaiah 66. And as you're turning there, I'll just put a thought in front of you. Think of God's wisdom and salvation. Think of what God did to save his design in salvation is we bring nothing to the table in salvation. We don't even bring our awareness of our need for a Savior. He has to give that to us. So we bring absolutely nothing. We don't bring our awareness of Christ and who he already is. He has to provide that to us. He has to provide us with the faith to believe. He has to provide us with the change of heart to actually go, okay, I'm in on this. He has to do all of those things. And we would have never come up with a system like that. If God would give us a sheet of paper and say, okay, write out for us how you're going to be saved, we would start saying, well, I got to do this, and I got to do this, and I got to do this, and we would fail at the first letter of what we wrote down. So if we can trust God when it comes to our salvation, when he describes how people are saved, we can trust him with everything else. We really can. This is what God says in Isaiah 66. Thus says Yahweh, and then God talks about in verse 1 about how big he is. 
In the beginning of verse 2, he talks about how big he is. My throne, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. I'm on the throne. You guys are where I put my feet. Where then is a house you could build for me? Where is a place that I may rest? I don't need you people. I don't need you. You, you can't build something for me that, would, that, that I could fit inside. I don't, you don't bring anything to me. My hand made all these things. And this is the way that all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But the end of verse 2 is what we want to think about carefully in this point. God says, but I'm going to look at a certain kind of person. I will look at a certain kind of person. Even though earth is my footstool, here is the kind of guy, here is the kind of woman that I look at. I look at him who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. So when you read something that it's an instruction that you don't really want to do, you don't really want to quit, you don't really want to start doing, there's a brother or a sister you need to go to, there's peace that you need to do everything that you can to, to hold. Trust the Lord in that. Be humble and be broken in spirit and obey him. And he will bless you to no end. So trust God's wisdom. The next thing when you're reading God's word is believe that God's word is sufficient. It is sufficient. Believe it. Second Peter 1, we're going through that in my small group. Verse 3, his divine power is granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And how is he given to it? He has not given it to us by our own effort. He has not given it to us by our own will and our own strength. He has given it to us by our knowledge of Him. He's given us everything we need by knowing Him. So where do we find God's revelation of Himself? We find it right here in His Word. We have a general revelation when we look out and we see this beautiful creation that He's made that we've sort of messed up. And we see the heavens that we can't mess up because we're too small, but we would if we could. But we have specific revelation about us in Scripture, about who God is, His nature, and all of that. And it's when we read that that God gives us everything we need to live a life that's pleasing to Him. So if you need help repenting from sin, and I do, if you need help reconciling a friendship, and I have needed that, if you need help growing in your affections for God, I need that every day. Don't look somewhere else. First and foremost, Recognize that God is giving you wisdom for doing those things right here in his word. This doesn't mean you shouldn't be reading good books. We should be reading good books. 50 feet over, we've got tons of good books. We should be reading good books. Give consideration to any good book that places scripture as the foundation for everything else you're supposed to do. By all means. Only use that book to the extent that its principles are based in scripture. Um, when you're dealing with something like, I've got some sin I need to repent from, or I need to restore a friendship, or I need to grow my affections, start with God's word, because that's where all the wisdom is. Godly men, godly women write based on God's word, and the Lord uses that to bless us, but start with God's word. Point number seven is really helpful. We need to read all of God's word, guys. We need to read all of it. 2 Timothy 3. We know 2 Timothy 3.16, right? All scripture is inspired by God and is beneficial for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. But when we see this, when we back up, we can see what Paul means when he says all scripture. He's writing to a pastor. 
And uh, look back at verse 10 in 1 Timothy 3. Paul says, you followed my teaching. You also followed my conduct, my purpose, my faith, and lots of other stuff. And he goes on and talks about when Paul was and Timothy were together. Uh, he was persecuted. And he says in verse 12, if you're going to live a godly life, it's going to cost you. Evil people, imposters. He describes that in verse 13. Verse 14 is, is critical here. Paul writes, you, however, he, looks, he goes right to Timothy and he says, you, continue in the things you have learned. And what he's talking about there is the scriptures that Timothy got from Paul. Paul's letters, Paul's letters that he wrote to others. Paul knew he was writing scripture. Timothy needed to know that that was scripture. That's New Testament revelation that, that Paul was writing. Then when you get down to verse 15, he talks about other revelation. From childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation. The sacred writings, that's the Old Testament. That is the Old Testament scriptures. So Paul is describing New Testament revelation and Old Testament revelation. So when he goes to verse 16 and he says all scripture, he's talking about both of those, the composite full revelation of God. And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. And the, the right way to think about this, teaching, what is right? Reproof, what is not right? Correcting, how to get right. And training is how to stay right. You find that in God's word. What's not right, what's right, what's not right. How to get right and how to stay right. Paul's point here is, is you're equipped when you read the full counsel, when you read all scripture. And yes, when you read Zephaniah, we were looking at in, uh, on Sundays with Omri, you're going to learn a lot about how to fear God. You know, I, I remember reading the book of Zechariah going, I don't know what's in here. I'm going to read this. You know, you ever done that? You're reading, you got a reading plan. Okay, I'm going to read this. And you, you take some time and go, wow, God really loved Israel. And he gave them some promises. And at the end of that book, Jesus is this big and he's reigning on earth. I didn't know that. All those pages were stuck together and I never read them. It's one of my favorite Old Testament books. Oh, by the way, uh, the pastors in uh, 2023 on Sunday evenings, we're going to be preaching through the 66 books of the Bible, one a night. Um, and so you're going to hear from all of us. All of us are going to get up there. Ashley Anderson's going to, well, we're going to start with Smed preaching the whole Bible in one night. And then we're going to preach Genesis in one night, Exodus in one night. And you're going to hear from all the elders. Uh, it starts in 2023, mid-January. Starting in mid-January, that's the plan, on Sunday nights. And the reason we want to do that is because all Scripture is inspired by God. Um, and we need you to see all the elders teach. So you get a chance to see what we're like. Um, and, and this is where you, you think about all scripture a reading plan is helpful and you've got a bunch of them spelled out in the back of your notebook and if those don't work for you brew your own reading plan think about okay what kind of reading plan do I need that works for me with my life create your own reading plan but make it one that will take you through all of scripture maybe it takes you through scripture in 10 years and maybe you're only two thirds of the way through when you die or whatever but take yourself through all of God's word don't have there be those sections where the pages are stuck together because it's God's word that is, is useful for all of those things. You find things in, in some portions of God's word that you don't find anywhere else. And if you never read that, you're going to miss it. So we want that. 
Okay, the last thing is genealogies. And I mentioned this earlier. You know, you're in a reading plan and there's genealogies all over the place. Your first one is five chapters into the Bible. And your last one well, is way over here. These are important. Um, and they have meaning for us today. And they had meaning for the original audience. And it's good for us to recognize the original, the meaning to the original audience. But it's important for us to recognize the meaning today. And I'm going to put two genealogies in front of you. Uh, the first one is the genealogies of Jesus that are in Matthew and in Luke. I just want you to understand something. Um, there's two genealogies of Jesus. Matthew's moves left to right in time. It starts with Abraham, and he moves to Jesus. Okay? And it's really important that you understand, well, who's Matthew writing to? Well, he's writing to a very, very Jewish audience, and he wants to prove to them that Jesus has the legal right to be the king the legal right, and the way it's passed down is from father to son. So you read left to right. It starts with Abraham. Why don't you just go to Matthew chapter 1 right now, the first page in your New Testament, and get impressed with this. This is really cool. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Right, And so there's, what I want you to understand is there's, there's 41 father-son relationships that are described here between verses 2 and 16. There's 41 father-son relationships. And the first 40 of them are active. Abraham was the father. That means Abraham became the father. He was actively the father. There's a human agency involved. Abraham and Sarah produced Isaac, right? And the next step, Isaac, the father of Jacob. So it's active all the way through this. You get to the last one. Okay, and you get to, uh, we'll start at the end of 15, Mathan, the father of Jacob. So that's Jesus' grandfather. Jacob was the father of Joseph. Again, human element, human agency. So 40 generations of human agency. Then read the very last part of this. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary by whom Jesus was born. The Greek there is passive. So right there in this genealogy, you have God's testimony to you of the divine conception, that Jesus is divine. The Holy Spirit descended upon Mary. It wasn't Mathan, Jacob, Joseph, Mary, uh, Jesus. It wasn't that. You see God's testimony to you in this genealogy that there is a divine conception because it's passive in the last relationship. The other 40 were active from a human perspective, right? But Matthew's writing because it's very important that, that Jesus be understood to have the legal right to be king. Then you go to Luke chapter 3, and you look at Luke's testimony of what this looks like. And it starts in verse 23. When he began his ministry, Jesus was about 30 years of age. And you look at this, and it goes backwards. You see the word there, son, the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of. This is the generation record going backwards from Mary, backwards to King David, and back beyond that, all the way back to Adam, down in verse 38. And what Luke is writing, and Luke is a doctor, Luke is writing to show that Jesus had not the legal right, but the blood right. That's why it starts with Mary. You don't see the word Mary in verse 23. Um, 
but Mary is what is being spoken there. So Matthew's genealogy goes forward in time. Luke's genealogy goes backwards in time because they want you to understand comprehensively that Jesus on one hand has the legal right and on the other hand he has the blood right. He has the blood right. And when you go backwards from Matthew, I'm sorry, from, from Joseph backwards, you get to King David. When you go from Mary backwards, you get to King David. King David had two sons. One of them was named Solomon. He had lots of sons, but I'm going to mention two. Solomon's son, Solomon was David's son, it's, and Solomon was the ancestor of Joseph. That's the, the legal right. But David's son, Nathan, was the blood path to Jesus. And that's where you get to Mary. So Mary's great-great-great-grandfather, Joseph's great-great-grandfather, they were both David's children by the same mother, Bathsheba. So Jesus wanted, and God wants us to see that Jesus had the legal right and Jesus had the blood right by the same household. So it's really important to understand that when you read your genealogy. It's not just a list of names. Yes, it's inspired scripture, and it's not critical that we memorize everyone in verse 26. You know, it's, that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is for us today is we see what's going on here. The original audience, they knew these people. Supposed to know these people. And it was important that they saw this. It's important that we see the big picture. They were related to these people. So that's that's one genealogy that's really important. The other genealogy is the generations of Israel. You're, you've got your reading plan and it goes, okay, today I'm in First Chronicles. And you look and you go, oh, there's eight chapters of genealogy here. What's do I really need to read every name here? Yes, every word is inspired. Here's the big picture when you when you read the, the genealogies in First and Second Chronicles. Okay, First and Second Samuel is the story of Saul and how he became a king, how David became a king. Right? I mean, the main characters in the Samuels are Saul and then David. And then you get to the kings, and there's a, there's a story there of the, after Solomon, there's a split of the northern and the southern kingdom. There's the story of them too, but you see that the, the story of the kings of the northern and the southern kingdom are intertwined as you read. And you get to the end of second kings and, and it's done. And by that time, there's been two exiles, the exile of the northern kingdom first and the exile of the southern kingdom. So the Samuels and the kings were written before Israel's exile into Babylon, Judah's exile. But when you read Chronicles, Chronicles is actually written after the exiles returned. And when you read Chronicles, you only read about the kings of Judah because it's only about Judah. Judah was the only one that came back. The northern kingdom was often gone in Samaria by that time. But what God is telling Israel is, listen, you need to know that I have a plan that my son is going to sit on the throne of David and you need to understand because you guys have been living in Babylon for 70 years and hardly any of you can remember Israel or Judah. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to give you a temple. It's a poor representative of the original temple. But you need to understand that I will keep my promise that there will be a Messiah. and He will come from the family line of David. So you need to have that family line. You need to understand all the other tribes because these people didn't know. They needed to know that, oh, God is still working through us. Uh, they didn't stay faithful for very long. They were unfaithful. Um, so the genealogies are there for a reason. God is telling you really impressive things about himself. When you read the genealogy in Genesis 5, you go, oh, there really is a young earth. You know, you can see, you can do the math, you can add up all the numbers. This, uh, this earth is 6,000 to 6,500 years old. It's not 19 billion years old. 
when I was in college or when I was in high school, the world was four billion years old, and now it's twenty billion years old, forty years later. So um, those are eight things to do, and just grow in those areas. Um, there's a lot there. Don't try and grab all of it all at once, but just grow in those areas. And the main thing is that you come away really impressed with God when you read your Bible, because that is what's going to help you and sustain you through every day. Because you have hard lives. Your lives are really, really, really hard. Hard things happen. People are difficult to live with. Difficult situations that are going on. Relationships are hard. You need God's Word to be meaningful to your life, and hopefully this helps you with Two basic questions you need to ask yourself after you're reading God's Word. Counsel your heart after you're reading His Word. Don't get to the last word and and just, i got to go to work, i got to go, and you do have to go to work, or whatever it is. But ask yourself two questions after you read God's Word. Your thoughts towards God, how are they affected by what you read? Thoughts towards Him. God, I want my understanding of you to be growing. And the second is obedience to God. Maybe you haven't read an instruction in that particular day. Maybe you're reading something else. Um, But nonetheless, it tells you how you should be in awe of God, how you should be obeying what you already know, what you read yesterday that did have an instruction. So your, your thoughts towards God, your obedience to God. Okay? How are we doing? All right, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for these ladies. You are so good and so kind to give us your word. Your word is rich, it's powerful, it's sweet. I thank you for that. I pray, Lord, that you would grant all of us your grace as we interact with your word. Lord, give us wisdom when to read your word, where to read your word, how to read it. Lord, so that more than anything else, we can be pleasing to you with our lives. And I pray that you would help us to read our Bibles to your glory, to your honor. Lord, and when we come together as sheep, whether it's small group or worship or whatever else, Lord, we would come together as ones who are that much more equipped to build one another up. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.